0: to create a listener account and in that listener account you can save episodes for later listening so you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to the Australian and New Zealand Studies channel of the New Book Network. It's Bede Haynes here and today I'm speaking with Sam Van Sweden about her work Eating with My Mouth Open, published by New South Books 2021. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on, in which I live and pay my respects to elders past, present, and future. Thank you, Sam. Thanks for joining us today.
2: Thanks for having me, Bed.
1: Now, Sam is a Melbourne based writer and unfortunately, Australians will know that Melbourne is in a five-day lockdown at the moment because of this dreaded virus, which is a bit unfortunate, but hopefully the best for everyone. Sam is a Melbourne-based writer interested in memory, mental health, and the body. Her writing has appeared in The Sunday Paper, The Big Issue, The Lifted Brow, Cordite, The Sydney Review of Books, The Wheeler Centre, and others. And her work has been shortlisted for a lot of prizes. And it won in 2019 what's known as the Kill Your Darlings Unpublished Manuscript Award. And it is now published. Now this book is based on food, memory, experience, body, mind, diet, animal welfare, all sorts of things that you're going to go through in this interview. And it really celebrates food and all the bodies it nurtures. Considers the meaning of nourishment within the broken food system, and it doesn't hold back from difficult conversations about mental illness, weight, and well-being. Now, Sam, could you let us know how you came to put this book together?
2: Uh, Eating with my mouth open is so, like you said, it's a collection of essays. Um, it started out for me as an honours project. Um, I was doing my honours year at RMIT. And I went into that with a question about how I could recreate for the page um, a style of writing that mimicked what our memories do when you eat and remember food. Um, so I was really interested in what what our brains were doing and how I might be able to recreate that for a page. Uh, so while I was writing it, of course, I sort of dove a bit further in um, and realized that um, while I was trying to write about the nice food memories that I had, there's also this sort of duality to the way that we think about food. And, um, yeah, this this was an opportunity to unpick that, so to recognise that there are two sides of a coin um, where, in one sense, we think about food as being nurturing and a way that you show love and um, connecting with, with your loved ones. And on the other side is this sort of diet culture, food as risk, um, Anxiety provoking side of the ways that we relate to food in our bodies, and I feel like I inhabit a bit of both of those. So eating with my mouth open is a way for me to unpack that.
1: Excellent. I want to proceed through this interview by way of almost thematically, and in the opening essays in the book, one of the recurring themes that I picked up was the notion of recovery, and you you talk a little bit about your, well. Your, fair bit about your your life your family life and the things that the family experienced such as mental health challenges and in a sense atmospheres of fear and shame which were imposed by in your in your household in a sense and also in the broader society society and what i really enjoyed about it which i'd like you to comment on is recovery is treated as a way of being a is something that can help you escape from fear and shame. And, but it's not really a way, as I understand one of the points you're making, it's not really a way to move from where you are now to an end point so that you become a new you. And while there may be movement and change, you never reach the point of saying, ah, now I've made it. And I'd like you to to comment on that, that idea of recovery as as just an ongoing process.
2: Yeah, I think... um... I think we're all sort of saturated in this very Hollywood driven idea of recovery from anything uh, where we expect to um, confront our traumas and have them dissolve because we've confronted them. Uh, And then we expect to reach the end point and for all things to be better and for us to go on without looking back. Um, But in my experience that, hasn't been the case at all trauma is something that's sort of ongoing um and that is held even even if we are able to confront it head-on through things like therapy or through writing or through sharing um and sort of oust the shame a bit trauma is still something that's held in the body uh, and it's something that is going to hang around in a long-lasting way and really recovery is more of an ongoing relationship to that trauma um and how how you live your life in in relationship with it because it is it's it's hanging around
1: Mm. the the book makes a distinction in in several places between the mind and the body and that the 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 physical appearance of a body does not necessarily reflect the mental condition of the mind so there can be a difference between those two things but often they can a, a person who's perceived as being physically perfect, or some notion of perfection, might be thought of as being happy, having a, a stable mental health. And the book gives good examples of how to avoid that, or how that that's actually problematic, and how it happens. There's a couple of points I'd I wanted to just run through a few points here and ask you to comment. The there's a you focus a lot on what on body size and how body size. Is often something that's—it's almost a societal invention of what body size is considered to be a good body size. And you give this example. I think it was Leonard Nimmi, the actor Leonard Nimmi, who used to do some—I don't know—therapy almost, where he would show people different, expose them to happy-looking people with body sizes that weren't considered to be the desirable body size to make people appreciate. All body sizes can be appreciated and enjoyed. Could you comment on that?
2: Yeah. So Leonard Nimoy, who I think most people know as Doctor Spock from Star Trek, um, he did a. He's also a photographer, and he did a series um, of photographs of people in all size bodies um, being joyful. And I think that that, like you said, that um, you've picked up on the idea of. Uh, a good body size as being socially constructed. It very much is. Um, And part of that is that we're exposed a lot to uh, portrayals of people in fat bodies or of any other sort of divergent body, people with disability, that sort of thing, uh, as sort of being doomed to be miserable because of their bodies, or... Triumphing in spite of their bodies, Um, but there's not really an option where they just get to be joyous in their bodies. And Leonard Nimoy, I think this was back in uh, the 70s or the 80s. This um, series of photographs was, um, yeah, he he made the move of depicting people in fat bodies as being joyful and joyous and happy, and that being an option, um, which I think is really important to the ways that we relate to our bodies, is having depictions. It's that idea that if you if you if you can see it, you can be it. Um, so we're having depictions that that show all size bodies as being worthy of care and respect and of being able to be happy is really important.
1: Mm. Another point in relation to this idea of, of of health, the book makes often is is an understanding that at least I often hear as well a fair bit in the in the circles in which I move, that food is seen as healthy. So something can be eaten because it's healthy. And I often sort of think to myself, although I never say this to anyone, when they say, oh, can you, can you go and get something because it's healthy? And I think, well, is it in the medicine cabinet or is it in the fridge? And there seems to be a distinction between or the, almost a trap of falling into this idea that the only food that a person should eat is something that can be labeled as healthy. Could you comment on that?
2: mm I think that's, um, yeah, that's a really pervasive belief, isn't it? And, of course, there are foods um, that are sometimes foods and foods that are all the time foods, Um, but the breaking down of foods into good foods and bad foods and moralising food in that way is really tricky and it's such a slippery slope. I think it's really easy to grab hold of um, the idea that, some food rules are good, so all the food rules should be better, and that the people that follow the most food rules are the most worthy, uh, and their their bodies are going to be the best because of it. Um, whereas we know that if you have an embodied relationship to your um, your appetites, that you are going to be getting like. Science shows us that you're going to be getting more out of your food. That you're going to be processing your food in a way that's more healthful, anyway. Um, I guess there's there's that idea about how uh, there's nothing healthy about eating your greens if you're stressing about eating pizza. Uh, so, okay. it, yeah, there's there's healthy food, but there's there's definitely layers and layers of social bias that's on top of that.
1: Mm. One an aspect that comes up in the book is your family heritage. And as I understand it, your your heritage goes back to Holland, to the, to the Netherlands. And the book, there's a couple of themes in the book. One is, well, there's two, I'll almost start that again. There's two parts. One is that heritage I've spoken about of the Netherlands. And there's another part of the book that talks about Your home in Phillip Island. And I think you treat them both slightly differently, but they have a common theme. And the first theme I'd like to touch on, I found this very insightful, is you you grew up on Phillip Island, which is an island, I think, southwest of of Melbourne Mm -hmm. and relatively small place. And there's this idea when later on, your family no longer owns the house that you lived in there. Everyone has moved away or, died all those sorts of things have happened so it's not as though you can actually go back to that piece of dirt and claim it and sleep there which in a way is is sad but then you also draw in this wonderful association of how even though the home might not be there it's still in your memory and that's actually relatively important so the ownership to the land is gone but then you start drawing out these ideas that it lives in the memory, but the memory only comes out when it's when it's stirred, renewed by things like the smell of food. Could you comment on that, that what your thoughts are there?
2: I think it's probably an experience that a lot of people can relate to in that, you know, now with everybody's parents are divorced and moved into different houses or moved away and started new lives. And that's sort of how it went in my family, my um Mum had a partner that she moved into a new house with. My dad got remarried and moved to the city. Mum eventually moved to Tassie. I left the island. Um, so my connection to the place is quite different to how it was when I was growing up. There's nobody there to go back to see. Um, and even if I do, there's it's because it's a tourist destination and somewhere that has had to upgrade its infrastructure pretty uh, rapidly over the years. It's so different when I go back that I almost don't recognize it. So I don't feel like I have that same sense of home that um, that a lot of people have of returning to their family home or their, their family suburb. Um, but – at the same time, so much of who we are is created at dinner tables through um, the ways the, the stories that we tell around food um, and the ways that we interact with our families at dinner time. Uh, so while I can't go back to the island, I can return to the recipes that we share and the meals that we share and our family table, and we recreate that in various ways um, in our new locations. And I feel like that's that's really precious.
1: Mm. And then with with the immigrant population from the Netherlands or from other parts of the world, which I understand your, your parents came to Australia from overseas. Mm. And, and a theme that you you draw out is that in their minds, they a lot of their food memories come from the food that they grew up with in the same way they do for everyone else. And that was food from another culture at another time, which seems to hold a place in their mind that this is the Dutch food. This is the food of, of the Netherlands, the one, the food we make. And then there's this, I think, if I hope I get this right, you're at a point in time you went back to the, to the Netherlands with your father for a holiday and there was a food on the, someone was selling on the street, which was a food he loved in Australia. And I think he tasted it and he thought, oh, this just isn't, this just isn't that, this isn't that same thing really. Mm. And there's just this almost it's like a time-travelling experience with food in the memory and food in the real world. Could you comment on that?
2: Yeah, I think there's um, there's that saying that the last place that you should look for assimilation uh, is in a migrant's pantry. Uh, so our, our brains are pretty remarkable in that they can hold up to like 10,000 taste associations. So your brain sort of files away a smell as an image, and that smell is related to taste, of course, through you know the retronasal stuff that happens when you eat. Um, so our, our specific food memories are very specific. Uh, so my dad moved over to Australia when he was 17. Uh, so he's now been a, an Australian for longer than he was a Netherlander. Um, and he's his memory for the food there has always been strong and we've always sort of recreated those foods at home. But, of course, those foods haven't always been accessible in Australia. Uh, so we've made approximations of the food. We've we've mixed up, you know, ingredients that are as close to the real thing as possible. And as a first-generation Australian, so my parents were both born in Holland, my brother was born in Holland, but I was born here. Um, for me, the approximations are more nostalgic. Those flavours are more nostalgic to me than the, uh, you know, the authentic versions. Um, But for my dad, he has the taste memories of Holland. Um, We – went over a couple of years ago together and we were able to share um, stroop waffles, which are um, syrup waffles. So two sort of waffly biscuits stuck together with a sort of tacky caramel. Um, and they, over here, you can get them in packets of four in the international food section. Uh, they're quite a particular flavour. You can pop, pop them on top of a cup of coffee and they get all melty and gooey and they're really delicious. Uh, over in Holland, you can get those ones, but you can also buy them uh, at markets. They they cook them freshly on the street, so they have like this um, almost one of those pancake things where you spread the batter around uh, and then ladle on some caramel and squeeze the whole thing together. Um and that the whole thing is hot. Uh, and while while we were there, Dad and I were able to to share that together, and he was excited to sort of say, "Look, this is how they do it here," and this thing that you've known your whole life is not the real thing. It's actually this this is this is legit, um, which was special. But it was also he he was quite disappointed because it wasn't what he remembered quite. And um, I think cuisine is interesting in that. It also keeps changing. So even if um, if he's right, <laughs> um, mm. and and it has sort of changed, that's what happens with food cultures. You know, the ways that we the ways that we cook things change. So my dad's memory of Dutch food is sort of stuck in time of Dutch food from the early 1980s when he migrated, not Dutch food as they do it now. And I think this is really, um, this is a thing. (laughs) I was reading uh, David Chang's memoir recently and he was saying his mum cooks fantastic Korean food, but she cooks fantastic Korean food from the 70s, not fantastic Korean food as Koreans would recognise it now. Uh, So, yeah, cuisines are really sort of shifting and changing all the time.
0: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent
1: off. Hmm. Interesting. Um. Another a bit of curiosity of mine is the book has a very very vibrant tone. It reads very well and it's engaging and it's gripping. Thank you. Which is really good. And anyone out there listening this is a book that is worth reading. If you want to read something and you can just read a a couple of essays and in your mind, will start thinking about all these things. You think, wow, wow, wow. So it's worth doing it for that. It's almost like it's a wonderful meditation almost. And, but I sense from what you've been saying so far today, you also actually underlying all these, you have a a, a actual not scientific knowledge of the way food works in the brain and the mind and the body. Is that, is that something you you have developed, and you've you had an intention in the book to try and inform the writing with that, but not bombard the reader with those type of facts?
2: It's probably a combination of curiosity, really intense curiosity on my part to explain why food memories are so persuasive and so compelling, uh, and also the pragmatics of turning. An honors project into a book, <laughs> in order right. to make it sort of commercially viable. they uh, you need you need more material. <laughs> the the way that that took me happened to be that I was intensely curious about um, what is happening within our bodies uh, when we remember food and um, and why that happens and the ways that different cultures understand this. So yeah, it it was sort of a process of moving it beyond my own small experience and. Uh, connecting that in a more in a wider sort of social uh framework
1: Mm. and with with cultures a a point which i really liked in the book was you 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 highlight the importance of comfort food for people food that's quick to make and seems to be enjoyable forever and so you give it the, one of the examples you draw is to say that most cultures have this idea of having a carbohydrate that's combined with something that's sweet or salty and then has some sort of fat base on it. So you might have grilled cheese on toast or pancakes with syrup or those rice sort of pudding things that are wrapped up in banana leaves that you can buy in various restaurants. And then I think you talk about have this this thing that sounds wonderful is after dinner having bread with brown sugar and butter, which almost turns the bread into a I mean, these these are in a way these are these are just desserts, sort of like salty mm. there there's they also when you read it you think Farah, this is great. What do you, what do you appreciate the role of those type of comfort foods being in the in the almost in the mind, not so much in the body?
2: Mm. Well they've I know that universities have done studies around comfort foods and they've found that um the role of comfort food sits more with who's serving it to you and who served it to you in the past than it does with anything to do with the food itself. So there are commonalities in comfort foods that come from different places. So like you said, the sweet and the salty and the carbohydrates and, um, you know, often a lot of comfort foods are brown. I don't know what that's about, but there's mm. a lot of brown comfort food in the world. Um, but, yeah, it's the association – is more to do with the emotional connection that people have with the food than the actual food itself. Uh, so for me, some of those comfort foods, like you said, I, I remember um, being able to zap some leftover micro, uh, microwave rice um, and butter and brown sugar and make like a caramel caramel pudding type thing. Um, and I guess the accessibility of that is really comforting as well, that comfort foods are often not too complicated they're, they're quite accessible things that we can throw together or get easily and that's um you know the self-sufficiency and that is really lovely
1: yeah and the the book the book also has an idea of what, what i've written in my notes here is what i what i've referred to as everlasting foods and i want to just ask you there's a, there's a few examples i want you to know, comment on but honestly there's two i want to begin with one is you tell us a, a, a memory. You recall a memory of your brother giving you a small box of chocolates. And as I understand the the one of the purposes of putting that in the book, or what I took from it, was you get the box of chocolates. They're small. There's not many in there. They're physical. They're physical things that are eaten quickly. But that memory is still with you now. It's still. It's, so in other words, the food is in. has an almost. The entire ceremony of being given the gift, the chocolates, you eat them, your brother's there, it's, it, and that, that creates this lifelong memory that exists, which you wouldn't get if you just went and, I mean, I imagine you have in the past just gone to a shop and bought a Kit Kat or something and eaten that and you you just it's totally forgotten, but this is different. Mm. Another example that you give, and this, this is what I would like you to comment on, is the Catholic faith's communion ceremonies where there's a simple food, bread, which, to a group of believers, when they come and come together on Sundays, regard that as having a whole lot more to it. It becomes a, 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 a subs, a, an eternal food for them, and it seems to have a communal role that something which individually is is physically bland, a, a piece of just unleavened bread takes on a great deal of significance. And so, could you comment on that on those, please?
2: Yeah, so the first um, example that you cited there was a story that I've included about um, what I thought was my first memory, which is I was three years old and it was Easter and I remember my brother giving me this box of um, strawberry-flavoured chocolates that were wrapped in little pink foils and, um, yeah, it was quite a small box, but I, I remember everything about it in a really embodied way, so I remember standing on the cork floor and i remember the cat going at my ankles because i was wearing a nightgown and um, i remember what they tasted like and importantly i remember what it felt like to feel special enough to have received a gift from my brother that was meant just for me and that that was a food gift i think wasn't unimportant um and as we've grown up my brother is now a chef the same as my dad was um in his younger years and um much of the way that we relate to each other is around food. Uh, We we give each other food gifts a lot and share food a lot when we can. Um, So I think noticing that it was partly about the flavour, but it was mostly about the metaphorical potential of the food, if that makes sense. So food is is really powerfully tied to other things. So we – there's – Uh, This thing that MFK Fisher, who was a a wartime food writer, um, said was that we have three basic needs for food and for security and for love, and that you can't write about one of those things without actually writing about all of the rest of them. And I think that that perfectly embodies what those strawberry chocolates meant to me, is that I was being given food, but also I was cared for and I was loved, and that is what that memory sort of stands for in my brain, and the same thing is happening uh, when those other everlasting food ideas that you were talking about—sort of mass for Catholics, having um, you know the body and, and the blood of Christ inside them—while we know it's not literal, it it also is so nourishing because of the metaphor that it carries. So there's um yeah, there's, there's a lot that you can pile on top of food that is not about the food itself, but much more about its metaphorical potential.
1: Mm. And that writer you spoke about then, M- M.F.K. Fisher, you have a, a quote from him at the start of the book.
2: Her. Um,
1: are there any other writers, food nonfiction writers that you think are worth looking at? Because I, I imagine you must have a few good tips for people.
2: <laughs> absolutely I've, I've done a lot of food memoir reading over the years and continue to um my absolute favorite that i i love to go back to again and again is called eat up and it's by a woman called ruby tando who was ex great british bake-off um and she now writes food columns for the guardian and um for other food press and she um Her book "Eat Up" is about appetites, and um, I guess sort of not being afraid of appetites and learning to eat in a way that is nourishing by unhooking from all of the 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 unhelpful chatter around food. Uh, So, and the way that she writes about it is so warm and so the the writing itself is nourishing. That it just it's such a lovely reminder of all the potential of food um, outside of the the worry. Um, another writer that I really enjoy is B. Wilson. She's a food historian and she has the most amazingly researched books. Um, one that came up a bit within Eating With My Mouth Open was one called First Bite, which is about how children are taught to eat and the ways that we think of children's food as being different to adults' food. Uh, mm-hmm. while, while this sounds sort of um, on the – sociological side it's also just incredibly readable and and relatable as you're sort of thinking about your own childhood food um memories so yeah those those are two that i've really enjoyed
1: thank you the an example and this is on the theme of the everlasting theme in a way is and i found this story just intriguing because when i read it i thought oh yeah i do that and i've never even been able to actually sort of say it out loud and I, and I hope I get this right, there was an example where I think there was a, you had a food memory of a, a type of satay, a chicken satay or something, mm. and you make the point that if you go into a restaurant and you see something on the menu that looks like that, you have an automatic inclination to order it, but you also have this repulsion to against ordering it. Repulsion might be a bit strong, but this you don't really want to order it because you also know that most probably you will only end up being disappointed and with that, yes, a similar example. When you find there's a, a, a shop called Lord of the Fries that, and you found a special sauce on these chips that you thought was similar to a sauce that you and your father loved, and you thought that was it. And your father was dragged along, I imagine, by you to this shop, and he ate. It. And I imagine he he kind of liked it, I think. But it just sort of showed that the the memory, the how the memory of the food can just differ, and you might never you might never really find it again, but you always want to
2: Mm. I think that's probably a combination of two things one of them being what I was saying before about the your brain being able to hold on to 10,000 uh discrete smell and taste memories that when you I mean there's such a danger of small changes not you know tarnishing the whole thing and you going oh that's, Mm. that's not quite it um but also, yeah, the the memory of those foods being attached to the people that feed them to you. Um, so the satay sauce that I've been seeking for a long time is my mum's satay sauce. Um, and when I was growing up, it wasn't it wasn't particularly flash. I imagine it came out of a Women's Weekly book or something, um, mm-hmm. and it was just part of my mum's everyday repertoire. Uh, it, but it was it that in itself makes it a comfort food it's so familiar it's so homely that sometimes i just really want the chicken satay but also i want my (laughs) mum. um yeah
1: Mm, very interesting I, i love that example another theme in the book is food in literature in fiction and this was almost my favorite chapter of the book it's only a short one but you go through the, the the examples of how food can be can teach restraint can be a warning against greed can um, and i've just run one through a couple of examples and i'd like to ask you to expand your thoughts here so you give for example how food can be in in the sound of the music the song my favorite things and there's the crisp apple strudels which is almost a fortress from this for the maria von trapp is in this storm on, and there's this way she deals with that is this mem- these memories she teaches these children and then there's this wonderful example where you draw from little women and you say when the the girls and their mother go to visit the sick neighbors with the the fever that they, they bring food they bring a food gift but the gift doesn't necessarily help because the the, the, the one of the sick people in the house they visit dies a child and then Beth, one of the, I think it's Beth, one of the girls in Little Women, also contracts the illness and dies. So the food, the the notion of giving is there, but there's also maybe there may ultimately come to be a memory of death around it. So it's almost the opposite of your brothers in the chocolate. And then, of course, there's the famous story of Eve and her forbidden fruit, and Charlie in the chocolate factory, and the role of Greed in Charlie in the Chocolate Factory, and I think there's a good example when I think Charlie gets the everlasting sucker or the lolly. I think it's everlasting, but I think I can hardly remember, but I'm sure you can. Where he gives it back, and part of his reward is he ends up getting the entire factory. He gets the food. He wins the food. He has food forevermore if he wants it. He has he has his heart's desire, but it's almost as like though he's conquered. He's no longer needs his heart desire to be satisfied with greed. He's found another way to do that. Could you comment on your, on some of these examples you've given from this literature?
2: Mm, I'm a big lover of the ways that uh, food is treated in kids' literature in particular because that's one of the ways that we form our relationships with food is is through the stories that we tell and the stories that we tell to kids. Uh, so Roald Dahl, who, who – of course, wrote Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and a great many other things that make use of food um, is a really big one for this. And his whole generation does this. So Enid Blyton does it, C.S. Lewis does it. Um, there's a whole – this. I think there's something around wartime food shortages and a fear of appetites uh, and teaching children that if you're greedy, you'll be punished, or if you show your appetite, you'll be punished. So. Even though Charlie Bucket, of course, we we know that he has a miserable home life where they're eating cabbage soup every day and, you know, the chocolate bar is a, an absolutely outrageous uh, luxury, um, but they managed to win their way into the chocolate factory. It's only the fact that he hands back the gobstopper and says, I'm, I don't want it, even though he's going home to this incredible hunger and, you know, that's a small comfort that he could take. He's rewarded for that with with the whole chocolate factory, um, so I think yeah, there's something there's something going on with uh, that generation of food writers and the way that they punish and reward uh, kids' appetites. But we're very much teaching children to to police their appetites at a young age.
1: Mm. And how do you can you comment on the the example of Eve? What you what you draw from from that example? I never really thought of Eve as, of course, the the famous apple, but I never really thought of it as a food story, but. You, you sort of you you use it as a food story in a way and could, could you comment on, on on the role of of the food in that part of the bible
2: i don't know that i have too much to say about it honestly it's just um that eve is an interesting parallel to draw the fact that eve is a woman and she had an appetite and she was punished for it um i think that's something that we can see happening everywhere where uh, in a in a society that Prizes and and rewards, women's appetites being restrained and um, and demonstrably restrained. So, yeah, I think I think it's just a, a way of pointing back and saying, this is this is not new.
1: Mm. And one, um, I want to talk about animal welfare now. And you've just mentioned C.S. Lewis, and it's just reminded me there's the the book, The Silver Chair, and there's this scene in that where there's the the character Puddleglum and I don't know. Two of the two kids end up in a giant that the castle of the giants, and they end up being something that's th- there on the menu. <laughs> the humans and the and puddle glumps on the menu. So it's almost as though they get. with the, I'm, not, I'm not sure if they ever become too conscious of it. I think one of them does, but they get they under they suddenly learn the notion of what it must be like to be the menu. And um, yeah, it was just, I think that's another good example from that genre you're talking about. You could go on, there's just so much in there in in that children's literature about food. It must be, you could write a book about that, I'm sure. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, Now, to our animal friends, you make some points in the book about whether, um, about how animals are treated and how that can often be horrendous and the way But to us, as people standing in a supermarket, that's almost hidden to us because the naming of of animal products doesn't necessarily correlate to the animal. The way it's presented doesn't correlate to a living thing. The where the animals are slaughtered is hidden. Um, What what what? How do you work animals? How do you work out the, the the idea of eating animals and food? And the environment. Could you comment on those those themes?
2: Mm, it's such a tricky part of eating, isn't it? The ethical sides of it. Um, I think with eating animals in particular, it can be really confronting because we have worked so hard to distance ourselves from the rearing of animals, from the slaughter of animals, from the processing of animals, the separating of the bits that we eat and the bits that we don't eat, um, and yeah, like you said, when, you, when you're when you in the supermarket shopping for beef, you're shopping for beef, not cow. Um, and you're shopping for seafood, not sea life. Uh, so it's, it's a weird sort of distancing that we do and it can be really confronting um, to look at those things and realise that you're eating things. Often you're eating things that exist in your own body, that, you know, a chicken liver is – the same as, or not the same, but the, the same part, the same function that we have within our own bodies, and then it all becomes sort of overwhelmingly horrific. Uh, but there's also a part of a part of this that I think can become really fraught. And the best way that I've found through it um, is to so there's there's the option of opting out, right? So becoming vegetarian or vegan, um, deciding not to engage with this food system that's incredibly broken, mm-hmm. um, but I also wanted to maybe call attention to the fact that there's often a, a moralizing imperative at play with veganism and vegetarianism as well, and there are other options. So things like there are ethical butchers, people who raise their animals in um, you know much better conditions. You know that the animals have had a good life, um, and the ways that they're slaughtered. Um, Uh, to a standard that the farmer is happy with, involved in, um, the ways that they're separated from the herd before they go to the abattoir, that sort of thing. Um, So that's an option. And also just reconsidering the architecture of a plate. So I think in Mm. Australia especially, you know, um, chicken is so available and um, protein overall is, it's very available and it's relatively cheap and it's not hard to fill half of your plate with protein, um, mm-hmm. so you've got you know a slab of meat, and then the rest is your veggies or whatever, veggies and carbohydrates. Um, but to rethink the architecture of your plate so that maybe you know a quarter of your plate or even less is the protein, because all we actually need is a much smaller portion and the knock-on effects of that I mean the knock-on effects of things like meat free Monday there's a lot of people that are embracing that as an alternative to full-time meat eating and the impact that that has on the environment and the food system is very real so I think it's possible to do good things you don't have you don't have to be perfect to be good
1: yep that's very important um, and one with that example you've given ethical butchers it's what are your views on this is that we for those people who have children at least in Sydney it's relatively common for the child to grow up and just be given meat you don't there's no the day doesn't come when they say from now on you are going to be given meat what do you think you, you are given meat and then you end up being someone who might be 20 and think gosh where's this all We're even younger now where's this all come from and then you might look at it and then you might think, ah, oh, there's a need to go to an ethical butcher because this this, this system doesn't really work. Do you think that that, that f- food education to, ch- to children is something that that is going to start becoming part of our society or, or through parents to the children, or it's really going it to remain something that an individual needs to work out for themselves because it's, the system is just so all-encompassing?
2: That's a really hard question. I think there's... Um... It's hard for me to pass judgment on anyone's parenting, really. Um, but it's something that's incredibly class bound at the same time. So, choosing to engage with ethical butchery or, you know, people that eat organic foods to avoid pesticides and all that sort of stuff, there's an absolute class boundary to that, that this is not accessible to everyone. Um, yeah. And for a lot of parents who are just trying to feed their kids. Cheap proteins are going to be an essential part of that, and I think that's okay. Um, so there's that, but also I think um, I think there's a lot more awareness of um, teaching children about food through formalised education systems. So um, I know like the Stephanie Alexander uh, gardening thing where they've, they've got um, gardens happening at schools where children are, you know, creating um, or growing their own foods and then they're harvesting their own foods and then they're processing them and um, learning how to cook with them and seeing the end-to-end um, right. process in a really meaningful way to sort of overcome that gap that we were just talking about where you're disembodied from, you know, we're so disembodied so removed from the process of how things get on our plate it sort of closes that gap a bit which i think is useful
1: mm. um the next topic dieting dieting plays a role in the book a couple of the concepts that i've picked up from what you've said which i'd like you to comment on is there is a diet industry first of all and you you, you talk about weight watchers now called ww and how it seems to be widening its catchment to younger and younger people and the idea that a diet itself the diet industry diets have to be things that do not work to have a diet industry otherwise you, you you're on your diet and it's all put it another way there never comes a day when you're on the diet and you come into work for everyone and you go this is great guys i can now eat cherry ripes to my heart's desire the <laughs> diet works i'm cured yeah could you comment yeah. on the the, I, the role of diets in our society
2: that's right if they if they worked as well as they reported to um, they would put themselves out of business and that's not a profitable um, model for anyone is it um, so I heard uh, there's a Melbourne-based uh, body image, activist, her name's Sarah Harry, um, who put this idea of diet culture as she, she made an analogy between buying a watch. If you if you were to buy a watch and somebody said to you, this watch only works 2% to 5% of the time um, and probably you're going to be back and you're going to have to buy another watch very soon, you wouldn't buy the watch. You would think it was a terrible deal. Yet, this is what we're doing with diets all the time. Mm. Um, The diet industry in Australia, or not even the diet industry, the weight loss services industry in Australia is worth, I think, $477 million a year. Uh, So this is a hugely profitable business. And that's only counting the things like um, Jenny Craig Weight Watchers, the things that are selling you. We go to meetings. We eat these things. This is the plan. So that's not accounting for like... Wellness culture with the end goal of a smaller body, or um, you know, fitness outlets that they have the end goal of, of you know fat blasting, or you know, any of any of those sorts of things that feed into the ideology. It's just the plans. Um, so it's a hugely profitable industry, and it serves itself. It doesn't serve the people that are sadly wrapped up in it. So um, yeah, it's okay. it's. A, <laughs> The struggle is real
1: (laughs) okay and how does where does the 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 book has this talks about this idea of health at every size i think that's the expression h-a-e-s how does um what's what what is the the goal of that movement or what what is it i don't even know if it is a movement what that the idea is and how that relates to or defeats or is meant to deal with the the diet culture
2: So health at every size um, is – it kind of is a movement. It's kind of a paradigm shift. So the way that – it addresses the ways that we think about body size being related to health um, and it tries to decouple body size from health and recognise that things like BMI are not actually a meaningful marker of health. Um, The BMI was – created by an insurance industry as an average representation of what people weighed at the time and had absolutely no um, meaningful relationship to the health of those people. So it's historically not useful um, and we know that it's it's not useful going forward. So Health at Every Size recognises that it's more useful to focus on meaningful measures of health, things like movement, nourishment, um, your relationship with your body, your community connectedness. So, a much more holistic view of things that are going to have real health impacts that can be measured Um, because we know that diets also most often will have an adverse effect resulting in things, you know, in shame and body dissatisfaction, eating disorders, weight cycling, which could create many more health issues. Uh, So, yeah, it, it sort of shifts the paradigm towards something that we know can be proven and can be useful.
1: Mm. And with what you've mentioned there about dieting and the, the idea of shame, the in my basic understanding, I would think that a person is unhappy with the way their body presents to the world. A diet is adopted in order to address that, to recreate the body in some different way, which the person thinks will is worth doing for some reason. It, a lot of that, to me, seems to be something that is more in the person's head than in their body, and that's that can be the real the real hurdle. What What are your views on on understanding on that type of understanding?
2: I think it can be that it can be um, the bodies that we're shown. So we're shown thin bodies as happy bodies, and we're all striving to be happy bodies. So we're we're all striving to be thin. But at the same time, um, it's also not just an individual – I think it's important to recognise it's not just an individual uh, relationship to the body, that it's also very much a structural issue. So doctors that adopt weight-based approaches to health are also people that are making those who already feel ashamed of their body less likely to seek medical help because they don't want to be told off or Made to feel more ashamed of their body for something that they actually don't have control over. Um, so it it feeds um, the social in, this sort of social injustice where um, those those who need medical help will then not seek it because there's such a, a, a stigma and a shame around it. And we know that that shame can actually feed so a lot of the um, the things that are couched as. Uh, health concerns are actually fat phobia um, and they affect people in all sized bodies. So predictors um, for lots of things uh, that are attributed to weight, like diabetes, heart disease, blood pressure, those sorts of things can actually be explained by the weight cycling that happens when you go on and off diets. So what we know as yo-yo dieting and also the chronic stress that people who are in stigmatized bodies experience through things like fat phobia.
1: Right, and just a couple more questions sure one is food and gender and a nice point is made in the book where you talk about the the a phrase a lot of people at least in Australia hear quite commonly if a boy eating a piece of cake oh that's good he's a growing boy which might not often which might not be said to a girl and that that seems to be creating an image of the person and another idea is is just the, there's also, there's also seems to be an age gap so that when people go to a restaurant if you're under 15 you have to you're you know, not forced to but you're almost encouraged to eat from a menu that just has yellow things on it, deep fried things and it sort of cuts both ways because a lot of adults well, in my experience will oh gosh it's not that good for the kids to eat all that but then I've said that myself but then secretly thinking I wish I could have that rather than this. <laughs> But um, so yeah, so it's, but what are your what are your views on on food and gender and food and age?
2: Food and gender, there's definitely a divide. Um, women's appetites are seen as unruly. If you're a woman with an appetite, it's it's dangerous. Whereas if you're a man with an appetite, you're powerful and growing and um virile uh so women's appetites are are policed in a way i think that men's are not and also construed in a way that men's are not so we've got man-sized things everywhere you know man-sized tissues we've got powerful men's razors we've got men's meals in the frozen food section the man meals are like twice the size of the women meals and they don't list the calories at all, whereas women meals have the calories all over the marketing. Um, so it's it's sort of a very, it's weird because we all have bodies um, and our bodies are different enough that to, to cut what they need down gendered lines is incredibly reductive. And I think the same goes for age. But at the same time, kids are incredibly intuitive in their eating in a way that adults aren't. Um, So if you give a baby or like a a toddler a a wide selection of foods regularly, they don't go for the forbidden foods. They go for a bit of what they feel like and a bit of what their body is asking for, whereas if you start to moralise that food, they'll go for the forbidden foods because they know that there's there's this sort of shortage mindset um, that, I mean, we're talking about being in lockdown if we're shortage mindsets and toilet paper hoarding we've all we've all seen it in action um yeah we're all we're all going for the things that we can't have or that we're told are are bad um so yeah i think i think there's there's probably something pragmatic about menus that makes it hard for people to just follow what they feel like they need but labeling those things as age or gender appropriate is really unhelpful
1: yes now with the book itself, it's lovely, wonderfully designed book. Lovely cover on it. There's no author photo in the book. Is that was that an intentional to be thematic with a lot of the themes you're talking about in the book? Of that people might put too much stock in a person's physical appearance.
2: Interesting question. Um, no, that that's that was just a. design thing really it's um I mean if you have a look at half of the books on your shelf they don't have author photos uh and I I don't think we intentionally didn't include an author photo in this one um I had some beautiful uh author photos taken by Leah Jing McIntosh which have been attached to pretty much all of the um the media that I've been doing Mm. with the book because I do think it's important as well to be seen and heard um so, yeah, it's it's not – I'm not trying to hide my body or anything and I'm not trying to um, to distance – I'm not trying to say my body doesn't matter because it does. Um, mm. Yeah. So, no, not okay. intentional, just a design thing.
1: <laughs> okay. And the book the, – the final question I'd like to ask is the book itself is it, – it just covers so many areas and it weaves a story throughout it and has lots of the themes we've discussed today. What would you like a person who picks up this book to what, what experience are you trying to give them
2: i think the book can cater to a pretty wide um catchment of people with very different um experiences i think it's it's for people who like me eat and remember things and are really moved by how powerful that is and that would like some some insight to why that is. Um, it's for second generation, first generation migrants whose relationship with their uh, cultural heritage is often based around food um, and it's for people whose food relationships are sometimes joyful and whose food relationships are sometimes anxious. Um, I guess I hope that it's a book I hope that it's the book that I needed a couple of years ago, um, that I, I wrote it because I couldn't see myself represented. I couldn't see these sort of halfway relationships with food and the difficulty but also the joy represented anywhere else, so I wrote it. Um, so I hope that people like me find it.
1: Great. Thanks, Sam. And what is next for you? What is Is, is there some more work in the pipeline?
2: Um, well look before we started recording I said to you that this took me six years to write so mm. the idea of taking on another project of that task is of, of that size is sort of um, incredibly daunting and I can't think of anything in the world that I feel passionate enough about to dedicate that much time to right now um, I have a wicked to be read pile so I think I'm probably gonna do a lot of reading over the next little while I have I have a bit of a history in um, writing criticism, so I might turn towards that for a bit, Uh, but mainly just sort of nourishing the things that I feel curious about and seeing where they lead me.
1: Okay, well thank you for your time today and and I certainly look forward to the next next thing you write, if it takes six years, so be it. Um,
2: (laughs) Thank you so much for having me.
1: No, it's been a pleasure and I must recommend to everyone if you can, grab a copy of Eating With My Mouth Open by S- Sam Van Zweden, published by New South Books. It's, 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 it's just a, a book that takes you to all sorts of places in the non-fiction genre, which is just great. So thank you once again, Sam. Thank you. This has been another episode of the New Books Network on the Australian and New Zealand Studies Channel. Goodbye for now.